0: this is life of an architect a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance architecture is not a trade it's a craft and it normally takes years of practice before you start to routinely exist in the delicate balance between programming requirements and artistic expression since this suggests that time and evolution is a consideration to development it also suggests that architects don't always get it right. Welcome to episode 115, The Art of Getting It Wrong. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Pac-Clad Architectural Metal Cladding Systems. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Porson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, we're going to pull the curtain back a little bit and talk about why getting something wrong is sometimes an important evolutionary step in the creation of an architect. And now that we have the attention of every architectural litigator in the country, let's clarify right out of the gate that we are not talking about being irresponsible or reckless. Fair point?
1: Yes. At least I hope not.
0: Yes. So this really has to do about getting the best out of people and how there's a creative process that the act of creating an architect goes through. And it has to do with we're trained to think a certain way up until we get to college. And then they kind of have to break us to stop thinking a particular way in college. And then you graduate from college and then they try to put you back into that box of thinking a particular way. And then you have to work your way back through that to get all the way back to the creative person that most architects strive to be. That's the whole premise of this conversation and what that means and how it manifests itself and why our education system might be a little broken in that process, at least specifically with how it relates to architects. Mm -hmm. Even though there's an argument to be made that it's not the best way to teach everybody how to think. So I should tell you, this was something that I've had so many beer-fueled conversations about this topic for at least a decade, and so I thought this would be a good one for us to talk about as we close out 2022, because it is a very conversational topic. Now, there is some hard data to support some of this, but I thought I'd start at the beginning, and it had to do with a TED Talk that I saw years ago. I mean, it might have been 15 years ago when I saw this. When TED Talks were new. Brand new. This was a 2006 (laughs) TED Talk. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was from a guy named Sir Ken Robinson, which you'd have to be so dialed in to know who this person is because he's a creative thinker, but he also was hired by, I'm going to probably say this wrong. He got hired by the British government to take a look at the education system that was in place to see if how they teach people to go about their business or how they learn things and how that could have an impact long term on the economic development of their country, which I thought pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, that's some big brain stuff. That is big brain stuff. Really big brain stuff.
0: It's so big brain. In fact, if you remember his Sir Ken Robinson, Mm -hmm. he got knighted as a result of this.
1: Wow, that's really
0: big brain. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to check it out. And it's a 20 minute TED talk and I'll put a link to it in the show. But he cracks a million jokes first off, because he, he gets up there and you're thinking, Oh, educators could be super boring. Mm-hmm. He just comes at you with the jokes left and right. So you have to kind of scrape some of those away, even though they're funny jokes. Yeah. He tells this one story about his daughter, or maybe it's not his daughter, it's some kid. She's in school. She's like in first grade or something. And she's drawing something. And the teacher comes over and says, What are you drawing? And she said that she was drawing a picture of God. And the teacher goes, Nobody knows what God looks like. And she goes, they will in a minute. (laughs) It's that kind of stuff. That's the kind of jokes that he's dropping. So I isolated out and I wrote it down because we can't play the audio here for copyright reasons. But here's something that he wrote that stuck with me. And he said, kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll still have a go. They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative, but what we do know is if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. They have become frightened of being wrong. And then he goes on to say, we run our companies this way. We stigmatize mistakes. And we are running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we're educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this. He said, all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. And Sir Ken Robinson goes, I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it, or rather we get educated out of it and i thought wow that's really kind of an interesting way of looking at things and so if you take that out of a box as it were conversationally and you put it on the table one of the things that he kind of starts off in laying the foundation for is that and i don't know if you knew this i didn't know it there was no formal education system in place before the 19th century like a national public education that didn't exist before the 19th century.
1: Yeah, everybody just kind of did whatever they wanted. Yeah. I mean, it was not – there's not a standardized thing. That's right. Yeah.
0: And he goes, but it came about as a result of meeting the needs of industrialism. Mm -hmm. And the public school systems were created to prepare you for getting a job inside that system. To
1: work in a factory.
0: Yep. Yes. This is what you do. So – What they did is they started setting up the structure. So if you were to list like, Mm -hmm. what is the most important thing that they start to train people? And he goes, the older you get, the higher up your body we work on to the point to where you're only developing your head. (laughs) Yeah, Little kids dance. And then next thing you know, he has this whole bit about college professors and really their body is just a transportation system to get their head to meetings. That's it. That's how it works.
1: (laughs) I don't take offense to that.
0: Maybe. It's kind of
1: funny. It's kind of funny.
0: Here's what I found as we start to think through that process and what he's saying. And in that quote, I think the issue that Sir Ken Robinson speaks of points to one of the reasons the process of becoming an architect takes as long as it does. So he's already kind of set the table. Traditional educational systems teach us. How to work towards a correct answer. If they're saying there's a right answer and there's wrong answers, and we're stigmatizing people to not be wrong, the conclusion is we're teaching people to work towards the correct answer. But in our field, in the architectural field, most architects will tell you that there is no correct answer, just degrees of correctness based on the variables that are in play. Like what's right for one person might not be right for someone else, and it's all based on Your priorities, what problems you're trying to solve, how you say, what's the most important thing I got to deal with? Yeah. So as a result, most people view the finished result of architecture without considering the process of creating that architecture. Like the public at large, they look at a finished product and that's how they evaluate it. But that's not how it is for us.
1: (laughs) For sure. For sure. There's way too many variables involved in that process. Way too many.
0: So, think about when you were in, before you started being trained as an architect. This may not be the exact way to describe it. It's what it was for me. So, that's just my benchmark. I basically didn't do any architectural training of any sort until I got to college. I know that that's not the case now for some school systems. Like, you can actually start taking architectural courses when you're a little bit younger. In high school, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's great. And I love that. Yeah. That was not what it was for me. I would venture a fairly safe guess. That that is not what it's like for most people out there. You're trained to take a math test and there's a right answer. You're trained to write English papers and there's points that they want you to make in an introductory sentence and three supporting sentences and a concluding statement. Like they teach you this is how it works. Mm -hmm. We have standardized tests that support this. Oh, yeah. Then you get to college. Specifically, you get to architecture school. Yeah. And man, they're like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah. They start giving you assignments that are preposterous.
1: Yeah, and open-ended and don't have a right answer. I mean, I would say I've taught freshman students quite a bit, actually, in the past six or seven years. That's always the biggest struggle is to realize that there's not one right answer to the questions that we're asking them. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of the people that actually end up transferring out of architecture in their first year, it's because they can't wrap their brain around that. Like there's not a single right answer and that there's. A multitude of them, and that as a professor or an instructor, you can't go, well, this is the right answer. We're trying to guide them to think creatively and think outside the box and come up with their own answers to problems. And they're not used to doing that, most students, because again, the public school systems typically don't work that way. There's standardized tests, there's always a right answer. There's not multiple right answers, and there's not multiple ways to get to that right answer. Yeah. I see that even with my daughters in like math when they were younger the new math stuff, which is completely different than the way you mm-hmm. and I learn math. And it's like, yeah, but the same answer, you can do this. And they're like, no, 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 that's not how you do it, Dad. You can't work it that way. And I'm like, it's worked that way for a long time, but now we're doing it different. So it's the same kind of thing when students come in that they kind of have to unlearn some of this trained programming that they've been stuck with probably the majority of their life, at least during, in public school, maybe after grade two or something, probably. And so it's, it's hard, it's hard for a lot of them to wrap their brains around not having a correct answer for everything.
0: Well, I would also think that part of the struggle is for people, because, you know, architecture schools are hard to get into. Oh, yeah. So academically, these are high horsepower brains that you get to start playing around with. (laughs) Yeah, they're smart kids, for sure. Yeah, they're smart kids. So when you tell them you're getting a B and you're like, well, how can I get a B if there's no wrong answers? Yeah. You know, and you go, we're evaluating the process. So the education of an architect intentionally and systematically breaks down the baggage that everyone's been developing through their senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And then they have to start the process of rebuilding them in a, I'll say, a non stigmatized environment. And when I say stigmatized, that just means you're not being punished for not getting the right answer. We're encouraging you to explore your creativity and to create something that is, let's be honest, frequently. More frequently than not, impractical. Oh, yeah. Which is why we've talked on this show at length about it's about the big idea for students. If you're an architecture student, I'm not worried about the nuts and bolts execution. That's what people think oh, I'm right because I checked all the boxes. Therefore, Mm -hmm. right. I did the right thing. Yes. And you're like, no, we're talking about the big idea. I'm not worried if you got the right number of Xerox machines in your programming. What I want to know is, what's your big idea? What's the concept? And it's funny. The phrase that I've pulled out of my pocket all the time is, how is this 10-inch beam going to support my lunar lifestyle habitat pod? Yeah. And there's this, like, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it really should have been a 14-inch deep beam. Let's talk about your lunar habitat lifestyle pod. Yeah. You know? And I will
1: say, at least in the beginning, I think as you get a little bit older in school, some of those things start to matter a little bit, but... The goal is to still try to impart more creativity to that process than practicality. And again, I think that that's something that it's almost like you want to tell freshman students to think like a five-year-old. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is off the table. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna draw that picture of God, go for it. But something, right? That you have to realize. Well, there's not you just going through and doing the things that I ask you to do doesn't necessarily equate to getting a good grade or excelling in the field or in this major because it goes beyond just doing the requirements. There's another level there that you have to try to tap into and and get to.
0: Well, that's a very kind of succinct way to say it, and I appreciate it. I struggled with this. I may have even told this story before, but I apologize if someone's like, oh, he's boring us with repeating these stories. (laughs) But we, as a freshman, We had to, this was one of the assignments we had. We had to read Invisible Cities Mm -hmm. by Italo Calvino, I think. Oh, yeah. If I remember the name correctly. Yep. Oh, yeah. The assignment that we got, like, we didn't spend any time in school about this, like in class. We were just told one day, here's your assignment. And then they told us. And then that got set aside for you just to do on your own time. Yeah. And what it was. These are supposedly letters that Marco Polo wrote as he was exploring what would have been the Silk Road, and he was trying to describe what he was seeing. Yes. So our assignment was, every week, we had to draw a postcard based on this book. We didn't have to recreate what we read, but it was the idea that you would write something, you would draw a picture on one side of it. Then we had to actually mail it to our TA, and they had to receive it by the following Monday or whatever it was in order. Yeah. So you had to be on this. Like you had to stay on top of it.
1: For sure. Mailing something. That's crazy.
0: Yes. And so I remember the story I told was we came in one day and there were like four or five of these postcards pinned up on the wall. And mine was one of them. And then the teacher went on to say how terrible these were. And I still remember I drew what was undoubtedly like an Old West saloon. Oh, nice. With a post for you to tie your horse onto. And yeah, I'm not sure if it was that literal, but in my mind, that's what it's become over the years. Mm-hmm. Swinging doors and, and everything, huh? Man, I'm telling you, it was a saloon. <laughs> that's funny. And they didn't say, Borson did this one and Johnson did that.
1: Yeah, they didn't call your names out. They just put it up there and talked about they it. They just
0: put it up there and they're like... You guys need to do better. And it wasn't a message at the five of us. It was, these are examples of what's happening, mm-hmm. but you all need to do better. And we are freshmen. This is like week one and two and three. This is right out of the gate. None yep. of us know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I didn't draw. I didn't know how to draw anything.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so something in my brain clicked. And I was kind of angry a little bit because I was one of those students that said, wait, you told me to do A, B, C, and D. I did it. Why are you telling me that what I did was bad? I literally did exactly what you told me to do. And so I was like, okay, you want to play a game with this? I'll play your game. And I started to draw the most abstract, wild stuff you've ever seen in your life. But what they didn't know is I had a master plan in mind. And what it turned out is when you assembled all the cards that I sent over the semester, Uh huh. It was a plan of a living room, so there was like a TV set and a chair and But you wouldn't know that by looking at them individually.
1: Individually, yeah.
0: And all of a sudden, they're like, "That mofo drew a living room chair," you know. But the scale of it was like way off, and Uh it was only part of it. And I'm like twisting my mustachio at my (laughs) diabolical.
1: You were outsmarting them. You were you were giving
0: it to them. You know, when I, I got a little like high five from my TA because I didn't see that coming. That's funny. <laughs> right. It was one of those things to where it was, you know, it was one of those moments in my architectural development that I realized that you kind of get rewarded for breaking the rules. Like we reward an architecture school. And if you're a student listening to this, I'm telling you right now, you tend to get rewarded for breaking these rules. Why that's important in this conversation. Is because at this period of your life, we're trying to get you to stop thinking like everyone's taught you to think for the previous 12 years of your education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wasn't doing that. I drew a saloon Yeah, at first. So they're like, think about it different.
1: You're trying to move you away from the literal in a certain way. Now, I will tell you, I think that's fine for me in your first two years to break the rules. But after that, there are rules that need to work. I think you've learned a little bit better how to manage them. At that point, I think you're pushing boundaries more than you're breaking rules, but the breaking rules part is definitely encouraged in the beginning, because it's just to get you to like to loosen up and think, to look at things differently and not just follow the status quo that you've been taught for the
0: past 12 years. And it's, it's hard. Yeah. Well, I feel like we should elaborate what that means, though. Breaking rules, for me, just meant if the teacher says, do these five drawings, do those five drawings. That's not the kind of breaking rule that I'm talking about. Yes, the breaking the rule is how do you get to your idea? How do you say this is what matters? What doesn't matter is the Xerox machine. Or if you have the correct potty parity in your toilet room layouts. Those are not the things that really in architecture school, most architecture schools, they don't care. Unless that's the class is like you got to do your plumbing layout properly. Yeah. Right. So when I say breaking the rules, it had to do with, Think about it in such a way that challenges the intent of what they're asking you to do so you can go beyond that. Be better than what they're asking.
1: I think it's, I guess, a way, like you say, to phrase it would be not necessarily breaking the rules or breaking them, but not disregarding them. Figuring out a way to accomplish what they want, but do something different or do it in a way that you feel is, is better or appropriate or pushes beyond what we're asking for, but not necessarily disregarding things. Not breaking the rules by not doing the assignment, but doing it in a way that meets the requirements, but maybe walks a line of meeting those requirements and doing something completely different. But still, you know, you can make the argument that you did what was required. Yeah. And it's hard to say, and it's probably even harder to understand if you're not used to it or have gone through the process of architecture school to even wrap your brain around the stuff that we're trying to say about break the rules, but still follow them, but maybe flaunt them. Push the edges and the boundaries of them.
0: Okay, here's another way of saying it. Take a step back and try to focus on freeing your imagination rather than drilling down into the rules to find your inspiration. Yeah. Don't use the program to give you the aha moment. Take a step back and use your imagination to come up with that moment. That's kind of what it's about. I can tell you there's three moments in my architectural time at school where that light bulb went off. One went off when I was a freshman, one went off in my third year, and one went off in my final year in school. And I had this, like, it just went, I get it. Hmm. And each one of them propelled me to the next one. Even though it's not overnight, it's not like I got it all at once. Because again, the art of getting it wrong, this is a lifelong process. Sure. And so what we've done so far is to kind of set the table that the national school system so how you were taught to think as a kindergarten through senior in high school create a certain type of product then you go to college and they try to break that a little bit and try to get you to think about creative problem solving and taking two pieces of information and coming up with some kind of new thought or new original way of looking at something more from life of an architect in just a moment andrew and i are joined today by tom becca CSI AIA allied member territory sales manager for Peterson maker of pack clad architectural metal cladding systems David has been with Peterson since 2016 and has been in the architectural metals industry since 1991 holding positions in sales technical and management for product manufacturers and distributors hi Tom thanks for being with us today we appreciate it
2: glad to be here
0: yeah so you're in Delaware we kind of talked about that earlier So how's it up there? How's the weather?
2: Oh, it's great. I specifically built down here a year ago. Yeah. The mild winters are fantastic. And, you know, we get about 12 inches of snow a year and they melts about 10 o'clock in the morning. So.
0: (laughs) Mild winters? What is, mild winters is where I'm in, in Dallas. That's (laughs) a mild winter. Uh, (laughs) Well, look, we're here today to talk to you about Peterson's Precision Series tile line from Packclad. Because you're the guy, you're the expert. So let's get into it.
2: I had a very, very large project in tile series for a children's museum up in Portland, Maine. Mm. Right on the waterfront. So we had to use aluminum. It turned out magnificently. They selected four colors to
0: complement the building and it turned out fantastic. Since we're talking about the precision series tiles, let's actually tell people what it is.
2: It's a precision stamped tile product. In fact, it was developed in the 1950s originally and used on roof only. They created a cupped version with an insert that they used. It created a shadow type appearance, but it strengthened the metal Mm -hmm. so that the installers could actually walk on the tile itself.
0: Yeah, I bet the profile helped quite a bit.
2: Later in the 90s, 2000, it started to transition into the wall.
0: You actually have three different profiles. You have the cup, the flat, and the diamond for architects and designers to choose from, right?
2: Right, correct. You know, we frequently get the question, can we change the dimensions? It's a precision die. No, you can't change the dimensions. We're kind of fixed on the dimension on all three profiles. Again, the large tile is the same as the cup tile. The cup has the insert to create that channel. Mm,
0: okay. You had mentioned that you had transitioned from being a roof only installation to a wall installation. So let's talk a little bit of how it can be installed because I know you can get it with concealed fasteners.
2: Yes. uh, You start from the bottom of the building with a, a false starter and then you start with your left tile first, left side of the building, work your way to the right. It is a sequential assembly. So they all interlock there's two drilled holes where the screws go into either metal. You can use hat channel, Z-channel. Uh, it can go into a solid substrate, like a 5-8 or 3-quarter inch plywood. you got your 3-quarter inch nail board that this product can go directly into it.
0: Yeah. And then you work your way up the wall. It's just basic sheet metal tools that are needed. There's no special equipment.
2: I put a list together, pretty simple.
0: You've got 10 snips,
2: bulldogs a hemming tool for your corners. Uh You're going to be cutting your corner to fit it, and you got to hem that side, a rubber mallet, and then that laser or level. That's it. On that large project that I handled last year, the Portland Museum, the installer there had a team, and he was able to install 350 tiles a day. Wow. I think during the installation, what's important is we have standard commercial trim for outside corners, inside corners, sills, heads, J-channel. All the dimensions have to be changed for this product because the height on it is only three eighths.
1: So what are the color variations or how many colors can I get in this panel series?
2: Currently, it's available in two thicknesses. We have steel, 24 gauge, and then we have 032 aluminum. In those two product lines, we have about 45 colors, summer premium, others are just standard, and they're all available.
0: There's a 10-year warranty that comes along with those finishes for all the colors you offer, correct? There is a
2: 30-year warranty on most of our colors except for two. Cardinal Red, which is a very deep red, and Award Blue. Because of the pigment in those two colors, they only get a 10-year warranty. Wow. The balance of our product line gets a 30-year except for a two-step we have a weathered steel and a weathered copper. Those get 20 here.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Pacclad and Precision Series Tile Line, visit pac-clad.com, send an email to info at pack cladcom or call 800-PAC-CLAD to find your local representative at pac-clad.com. Thanks so much for spending your Friday morning with us, Tom. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Well, enjoy the weekend, guys. Yeah. Yeah, you too. We appreciate you. All right, Tom. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's say you're successful. Let's say that your professors in college did exactly what you want them to do.
1: You've mastered
0: it. Yeah. You've mastered this. And you graduate and you go get a job. And what's the first thing they're going to start doing? Whoa, you can't do that.
1: Put you like, back in the We got a box. budget.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're going to start trying to put you back in that box because there's rules and there's codes and there's budgets and there's deadlines and there's like other people on the team <laughs> and there's clients and yeah there's gravity all these sort of things. Everything is all about this kind of prescriptive these items that tell you you can't just have this unfettered lunar module pod. Yeah. That doesn't work. There's a
1: new form of rigidity that gets placed around you.
0: So once again, now We're scraping all those bits aside. And it's hard. There's a transition Mm. that everybody has to start going back through again. Oh, yeah. And and I go, architects need to now go through a period of time where they have to learn how to be creative once again while learning how to incorporate those real-world variables into their creative process, because not everybody's creative process is the same way. And finding this balance takes time to develop because the impractical and the practical are at odds with one another. Or are they? So this is the twist. Are you ready for my twist? Okay. So what I have in my notes here when I was trying to figure out what my trail of breadcrumbs for this conversation was going to be, I wrote down, it's with some amusement that this process of finding a balance between the impractical and the practical being at odds with one another is rarely in our field. It's rarely called what it is, which is the scientific method. Yeah. Which, come on, everybody, we just forgot. It's like we just forgot that that really exists, at least in our field. And I go, okay, develop a problem or ask a question, attempt something to answer it. If it doesn't work, review what it was and what wasn't successful, change something, try again, or try something else, fail to get something that you want, repeat, repeat, repeat. That's how this process works. Now, you're not in a lab, so it's not like you can go, oh, I used too much hydrochloric acid in this sodium bag. Yeah. The scale at which this happens, the speed at which it happens, is much different for an architect. Yeah.
1: Much bigger, much smaller, and definitely much slower, no matter what. Much slower. (laughs) I mean, it could be at a larger scale. It could be at a smaller scale, depending upon where it's at, but definitely much, much slower.
0: You know, so I have a story about site visits, but... I want to say this for people that, I don't know, maybe they don't remember really what the scientific method was really defined as. It is, at its purest form, it's a method of procedure that has characterized natural science since it was identified as a process, which was in the 17th century. And it consists of systematic observation, architects do that, measurement, we do that, And experiment while the formulation, testing, and modification of your original hypothesis. Like you have a problem you want to solve. So you set up, I'm going to solve it in this way. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to use these products. I'm going to use this construction technique. These are all the things that we do. And then they build it. And then people use it. And then you have to go, did it work? Did it do what I wanted it to do? Did it function the way we all believed that it would function? Are the human beings that are engaging with this space. Are they doing what we anticipated they would do? This takes years to go through this for one project normally. Yeah,
1: If that ever happens.
0: Well, I'm going to say that it does happen, right? I mean, it happens for me. It should happen for everybody. You do a project, you can't help but look at it and go, it's aging well, or people still use it, or they tore it down. (laughs) I mean, there's things that will be good indicators that what you set out to do and the degree of success you had while doing it. So tell me if this is any different from you. We just had a project get finished. And we've had a series of walkthroughs. We've walked through with the architectural team. We've walked through with the interior design team. Half these walks, the owner was with us. The contractor was always in the vicinity, which I never like, if I'm being honest. (laughs) Because in these moments, I'm not walking around going, yep, they did what we asked them to do. I'm talking to the other people on the project I work with and go, Did that do what we anticipated? When we Mm -hmm. put that beam overhead, did it create the sense of space that we wanted? Oh, see where we set the windowsill next to the desk? And we did that so that if I put a book or a notebook on the desk, you're not going to see three inches of notebook in the window. But did it make the windowsill too high? There's this evaluation of the decisions you made to determine, that was great. I'm going to do that again. Or that did not work.
1: don't do that again. We missed it by a couple of inches. Next time we'll adjust.
0: And it's not so much that it's wrong because everybody has different feelings. They might go, I love the way that looked, right? Because some of these things we're talking about are subjective, but it's important for us to evaluate what we're doing so that we can have this, this worked, put it in my little quiver of solutions. Let's put this, this worked, the lighting was great when I did this. Like These are things that That you collect these little miniature, broken-down solutions to a much larger problem, and it takes years to collect all these do's and don'ts for an architect. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all heard the phrase that architects don't really hit their stride until like their 40s or 50s. And I'm sure every 25-year-old goes, not me, I'm going to be amazing day one.
1: Or they hate that sentiment because they put it as that's like old-school thinking of it shouldn't be that way. That's the one I always hear. Is like, there's people leading fields in their 20s all over the place. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, but yeah, but they're thinking about. Well, I mean, I'm making a gross generalization here, but I go in some of those cases, they're thinking about something in a way that nobody's ever thought of it before. Mm -hmm. That's part of what puts them in this sure deep, fast-moving waters by themselves, because they're doing something that no one's ever done before. I would venture a guess to say, in some way. Every building that's being done right now has been done in some way. Like office buildings, there's a lot of them.
1: At least 95% of it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Of the things that are being built today have been built before. Not to say that there's not innovation happening. Again, I think it goes back to that idea of a scientific method. You're building on top of existing knowledge. Yes. It's not like you were saying those other people. They're making up brand new knowledge. That's the difference. But we are, as a profession, building on existing knowledge. 90% of the time, if not 95 to 99% of the
0: time. Yeah. We know that there's certain things that have to work a certain way. How we solve that problem, that's our sandbox. Mm-hmm. It's not what problems are we solving, it's how we solve them. That's where we get to be really creative. But it's not a blank piece of paper. When we set out, someone goes, I want an office building, or I want a hospital. Or, I, there's things that you can think about, but we know what hospitals are, and we know what they do. In some capacity, it's not a zero, We nobody knows what a hospital is. Exactly. What do I, I can exactly. do whatever I want. No, yeah. you can't. Yeah. You can build upon and make things better and improve them and go, this worked, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. This could be better. Hey, we want to get more daylight into the rooms because we've learned that that helps people recover more quickly. Yeah. Heal faster and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's evolution to all these things constantly, but it's never a reset for what we do. So- Really, we're now we're talking about the fair test, and the fair test has to do with you know, all those things that I was mentioning earlier about observing it, and measuring it, and experimenting it, and all that kind of stuff. The concept of the fair test is that you take all those variables, and you change one, at a, one of them at a time while the others remain constant, so you can know, like, did it work, or did that thing make it work? Like, what made it work? But that doesn't work in the architectural world. There's too many esoteric variables in play on our projects, right? A wall not just a wall. It could be drywall. It could be brick. It could be stucco. It could be lots of different things. The light's going to engage with the different. It's going to be at a different yeah. cardinal yeah. orientation.
1: And we don't always have control over those things, like 100% pure control over those things.
0: Yes. So here we go. Now we've kind of chatted our way through K through 12, and then we've chatted our way through college. And we've chatted our way through the entire life of an architect. (laughs) You're bad because you keep having to unlearn to relearn. And then you have to then layer back what you just worked to unlearn to start incorporating that into your process. Yeah. I mean, it's not just about getting better at the same thing. I'm not a noodle maker. No offense to the noodle makers, but yeah. Yeah. Look, that's not a – it's just I'm saying there's a level of complexity that goes into an art that is not about refining – a series of moves down to their lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. This is the bare essence of what we do, and I'm just going to get so good at it that it's beyond repro. When do we ever get to do that?
1: It's got to be rare, if ever.
0: Yeah. So that has to do with, and we could really have fun with it, start talking about if you subscribe to the idea, I don't know enough about brains to really speak with a lot of knowledge about it, but it's the idea that, The two sides of your brain have different responsibilities. And most people believe, I believe this because I don't have the data at my fingertips, that there's an artistic side of your brain and there's a practical side of your brain. And our profession requires us to find some kind of balance or some kind of mastery of utilizing both sides of our brain in both a creative and a practical way at the same time.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm not just pure one or pure the other. I have to find some way to seamlessly navigate both sides of my brain at the same time. Yeah,
1: mesh the two into some kind of solution,
0: quite honestly. And I think it would take a little bit of time to kind of figure that out. And again, because we're saying it takes some time to figure that out, it's not like we're not doing anything during that time. You know what's happening? We're getting things wrong. Mm. But that's why it's called the art of getting it wrong, degrees of wrongness? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
1: We're getting it wrong, but we're eloquent in doing it in the process.
0: Well, it's, it's evolutionary is yes, what it is. It is. This is true. Let's go back to college a minute since we have a professor on the show. From an educational standpoint, do you see these light bulb moments or do you see this evolution of students unlearning something? Because you you teach all levels of studio at your school. Yeah. You get them as freshmen, and you've had advanced level classes. Yeah. Do you see like the grinding of the gears when they start off as freshmen, and you're trying to literally break them from these habits that they've been trained to develop over years to not work that way? And then you see them, it all start to come together towards the end. Yeah,
1: definitely. In some of them, it's very obvious. And in others, it's more difficult to see, but you can see it in their work. But I will say, like, there's a moment that we we know and we expect that to happen in their freshman year, which is sometime actually in the spring of their freshman year. I taught with the same group of professors for quite a while, and we would talk about it. it's getting close. We know in the middle of this project, if it doesn't happen, there's going to be problems for the student. Mm. Because we know this is about the time where everything starts to click and it starts to make sense, and they understand all of these things. Things that have seemed so separated and disparate up to this point, now they all start to mesh together. And it's that point where you can start to see, oh, they get it. It all clicks and it all makes sense. And it's an obvious time to be able to see that that happens. So it's there and you can see it. The other thing I think that's really interesting for me is this is the first year. I'm actually teaching a fourth year studio, which is their capstone type project. And I have a large group of those students that I taught as freshmen. That whole fourth year, there's a group, even not within my studio, but in the fourth year studios, that I taught a large a large amount of those students as freshmen. So it is interesting to me at this point, now that the semester's almost over, to see how those students have grown in the two or three years since I've had them mm-hmm. in class. And it's it's been interesting to be able to see how well they've adapted and, and how much they've changed how well they've adjusted to this idea of not being as practical or looking at things in a different way. And again, there's very varying levels of that for sure, but it has been interesting to see how those students have evolved because up until this point, I don't think I've ever had some come back around. I've just missed them, but it's been interesting this semester to have them again and see their evolution.
0: Okay. Let's build upon that with the very topic that we're discussing so now that you were kind of responsible for laying some of this foundational kind of information in place, and then they've advanced down the road, do you see it and go, I need to make some changes to what I did to these first-year kids? Of course. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, like that didn't work.
1: I can definitely see the, th- yeah, the things that that I was trying to instill in them that it maybe didn't quite take as well as I had hoped, or they didn't comprehend it as well. And again, I think that's also starting to happen as now as I'm I'm starting to finally at least repeat teach the same studios Mm -hmm. and in that process you're able to develop new ways of thinking about Oh, well i tried that and it didn't quite work out the way i wanted and so i got to try something again next semester to try to help improve their understanding of certain concepts or ideas you know a prime example would be this semester they're dealing with structure and so in the past i've waited till they designed a project and we started trying to talk about structure in this semester i started them out with exercises on building structure, not for your project, but just how to structure work in a project. And hopefully that was going to get them to think about it as they were designing their project. Didn't work out for all of them quite that way, to be honest, but that was the goal is to try to change up the way that you're trying to teach them stuff. And so it's easier when I get to teach the same class over and over, but it is a process again, even now I'm learning how to undo things or undo things I thought would work and learn new ways to put them together. It's still the same process of looking for creative solutions to something. It just happens to be educating students versus building a project.
0: So I find it interesting as you're saying, hey, we're going to introduce structural systems or that process to the workflow earlier. When you were talking about that, I started distracting myself with thinking, ooh, how would that work? Yeah. And they're trying to solve all these other kind of rudimentary, I don't mean that in the way it came out. What I mean is, These foundational, these building blocks that they're learning to use. Yeah. At some point, do you not think, hey, I'm going to start with block one, not here's five blocks. Let's work these five blocks right out of the gate. You know, it makes me think of my office when we started doing that seven minutes in heaven program, Mm -hmm. which was a program to teach younger people how to stand up in front of a room and communicate. And when we put that program in place, one of the things that we removed was what they should talk about. So we don't give them a topic because we don't want them to focus on talking about something that they have to go learn. I go pick something that you know really well so you can focus on these other issues that are more specific to the act of standing up and talking to people rather than what you're talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering at what point of the educational process of an architectural student, I would imagine there's a great deal of time spent at the rate and speed and complexity in which these variables are introduced to them. Because again, the premise of this whole thing is you're, you're unteaching them to a certain extent to not follow certain kind of, there's a right answer for this. And a right answer might be that beam's too small. It needed to be bigger. Your building fell over. Sure. So how, how does that actually work? Is that a hard question? It's probably a hard question.
1: Yeah, that's a really difficult <laughs> question. I think that's the struggle as an architectural professor. I think that is the struggle. And even within the curriculum, it's a tough it's a tough thing to manage because, I mean, we all know as architects, when we're working in the profession, we're having to balance so many things. Our plate is full on a project of so many different variables that we have to contend with and deal with and solve and resolve. And... It becomes similar in teaching students about that stuff is how do we start to layer that in in a way that doesn't just overwhelm them so much that they curl up in a ball or that they don't retain any of it because mm-hmm. it's just too much. And I think that right now, that's one of the things that we're, I'll be honest, I mean, I think we're struggling with, but we're trying to figure out how to do that better is when do we start to implement things and, and how do we stagger that learning appropriately so that it's not that they're dealing with five things all at once, which I think, though, it seems like for students, it still happens anyway. I mean, because I have students that they've taken two or three structures courses, but in their brains, they still haven't made the connection between the fact that that's really part of what we design as an architect. That's part of what we're doing, and it's not something that's relegated to someone else, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or it's not something that comes in after we've done our design, and we just start sticking the bones in the chicken after it's already, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way, right? And so I think it's those kind of things, it's hard to put in motion, because Everything seems so separated and it's how do, you, how do you really start to overlay all those things one over another and on top of each other so that they all inform your solutions, inform your ideas, but it's so difficult, I think, in the short amount of time that we, we have to kind of do that while at the same time, right, we're trying to get them to break down and say, hey, there's no real right answer. Go crazy with it, but don't forget about these things and these things and this layer and that layer and all this kind of stuff. It's a difficult task, I think, for, for anybody.
0: Yeah, and then imagine they graduate, and then they get hit with a whole new different set of considerations and parameters,
1: and it's difficult, right? I think it's hard. You know, a lot of people, and again, I, I don't think that our educational system is perfect by any means, but I also think that it's impossible for us to produce people that are workforce ready because.
0: I bet you're getting a lot of pressure from like the, the... Oh,
1: right now for sure. Yeah, right.
0: They want you to be developing students that can come into the office day one and contribute.
1: Oh, yeah. Yes. And that's just not possible. Or we're going to have to go back to being that type of education system that we're just trying to break them out of. and It all becomes this very regimented sort of there is only one right answer and this is how you use this software and you make these lines and you do this stuff, you know, all those sorts of things.
0: That's what Sir Ken Robinson was talking about, how the needs of industrialism started defining what kids were learning Mm -hmm. in formalized educational systems. And it was, you're going to learn these things. So like math was at the top and science like, and at the very bottom was dance. Yeah, They're like, dance is not going to help you get a job in the new industrial systems that we're having in place you know, this commerce system, Yeah, we're rewarding these things. We're not rewarding the arts and dancing and painting and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And that's not quite a huge leap, but the premise is still now, if we're getting pressure to make our students more workforce ready, you're going to have to give up something in order to spend the time to teach them how to do these more practical things while they're in school. Because I can tell you when I was in school, I mean, I took structures classes. We had classes where we talked about structural systems and how they worked and Mm -hmm. what type worked better with what type of building. Sure. But I don't recall, and I'm pretty sure that's my nice way of saying we didn't, but I'm going to give somebody an out. (laughs) I never had to demonstrate any kind of structural mastery in any project I ever did. Yeah, Not once.
1: Yeah. And I don't know that I did either when I was in school, but I think it's now that's an expectation of things just across the board. I guess maybe there's some schools that are way more artistic, that that's not what they're at. But, you know, I think most schools, there is a requirement for this. A certain level of technical competence. And I think, in my opinion, that's because the profession has decided that that's not part of their duties anymore. <laughs> sure. Because they want people to come in more workforce ready than even they did when we were in school or when we got out of school, that I think the, the profession expected there to be this, the apprenticeship model that no longer really is mm-hmm. in existence in the same way. I mean, it's there, but the structurally it's different, right? Because I think even the profession, the demands in the profession have progressed so much. Every project has a shorter timeline than it used to, and you know, all sorts of things. But I think it's an, it's an interesting conundrum, I think, that we're in as a profession. and the education system, both.
0: Well, it's the fact that you have to go through the same kind of learning and unlearning process multiple times mm-hmm. in your development as a creative thinker problem solver is part of the challenge. And it, I think it's the foundational consideration, as, and there's always exception to the rule, but most architects don't really start putting all those pieces together with control. Until they're old enough to have experienced the process of getting things wrong a few times. And then learning from the process to know why something worked well enough to repeat the success without repeating the solution. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do. Yeah, that takes time. And it takes, yeah, a couple laps around the block before you're going to be able to do that. It's
1: the same thing that we tell our students is it's iterative. Like it takes iterations to do that. You can't just Come up with one idea and that's the one you've got, right? Like, you have to go through multiple solutions and ideas to get to one that really works and solves the problem. And in school, we, we try to make you do it really fast, but in the profession, it, our iterations move much slower because projects aren't 10 weeks long, they're 10 months, two yeah. years. I mean, that process is just much slower. Uh, and, but it's the same principle. It's the same idea. You have to go through iterations of things in order to come up with better solutions over time.
0: Well, I don't think it's a stretch. And I think that we could probably identify really almost any profession at any level that basically says, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Sure, right, yeah. I bet the first hole you dig won't be as good as the 500th hole you dig. Yeah, or
1: the first brain you operate on is not, maybe better than the last one you operate on, but maybe not the midpoint somewhere there, right? Yeah.
0: Okay, so that's kind of the premise of the show. Hopefully that kind of came across that, you know, there's an art to getting it wrong and there's a process associated with it. And it's evolutionary and it's it's iterative.
1: And it's part of a process. I think that's the difference, right? It's a process. You have to have failure to improve the process. All right. Nice.
0: Okay. We are at a point. We're going to jump into this episode's ranking. So I'm going to take credit or responsibility for today's ranking topic. All right. It's either great or it's terrible. I think it's great. I think it's great. Okay. I think everybody should have an opinion about this. If you're the person listening to this show, you better have an opinion. You need to know your answers to today's ranking. Ooh,
1: man, that's tough. This one was hard for me, actually. Was it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, sort of. A three. Two were pretty easy. The third one, I was like, mm, I don't know. But I had to look up. I, I had th- to go do some research on
0: <laughs> Which is kind of funny. When you hear the topic, you're going to go, okay. And I also have like six of these. I was like, we could do this. We could do this. For some reason, I had this. What's the ranking? Ep- ranking epiphany today? <laughs> yes. Because we always talk about, oh, we've been doing a lot of food because some are really wow. hard. And every now and then, people in my office will go, you should rank this. And I go, I can't rank that. Who knows what that is? Somebody goes, you should rank chairs. And I go, what three chairs could I just assume that everybody knows? Yeah. Right? Uh How many people know chairs that well that they have a top three or a bottom three? (laughs) Or they'll pick something, they'll go like, oh, rank your three favorite cocktails. I go, I got people who listen to the show that are not of drinking age, and that would be inappropriate. So, the goal is to pick things that everybody can have an opinion about. Sure. And we've got that today. Yeah. All right? All right. All right, here we go. Drum roll, please. We are ranking the worst three. Geometric shapes.
1: Boom. The final rank of 2022's geometry.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. That seems appropriate for an architecturally themed podcast. I think so. I think so. I get that now. Yeah. So since I came up with it, this is also my deviant plan. I know. I know. My devious scheme here. You have to tell me your number three first. The number three worst shape.
1: Yeah. This is the hard one. I think, I think, I think. So easy. No, I think I'm going to go with trapezoid. (laughs) Trapezoids are
0: stupid. They're just
1: dumb. It's just a square with leany sides, a drunk rectangle. It's got sides that are not working. Yeah, I don't like them.
0: You know what? I support that answer. That is a good answer.
1: Yeah. So the third one was the hard for me. The other two, I mean, like, they popped in. Number one popped them out immediately. Number two wasn't too far behind. But then I had to go Google Lists of geometric ge- shapes so I could come up with one that I didn't like. And it was trapezoid. Well, I
0: had one. I told the people in the office, I like, go, oh, this is what we're doing. They're like, uh, what do you think it'd be? And I go, if you put, if, if this is not on your list, you're a psychopath. <laughs> like, there's definitely some shapes that are like, they're just garbage.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree. I'm curious to see if we end up with the same one
0: here, but. We'll see. You know, my number three is the semicircle. <laughs> come on, bro. You got to commit. What are you? <laughs> A half circle?
1: It's terrible.
0: Right. It's a terrible shape. Okay. A semicircle. <laughs> I hate it. All right. That's a hate so it's a strong word.
1: It is a strong word for a semicircle, but all right. A semicircle. A half though. circle. Yeah.
0: When has a semicircle ever, you're like, thank God semicircle was here. I mean, ever? It, never.
1: If you rotate it on its side,
0: it could be a smile. Come on.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm. It's number three. You know, it rightfully deserves a spot on this list.
1: All right. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. Number two is a parallelogram. <laughs> okay. Look. Again, can I tell you my number two? Yeah. Also, parallelogram.
1: Oh. This <laughs> stupid irregular rectangle. Come on, man.
0: Those angles. It's like failing. It looks yeah, like a I rectangle that's like in a state of failure.
1: About to fall over. Yes. The angles are worthless. Like, I see it's just it. Terrible.
0: And I go, you're not providing any value. You're not bringing anything to the mix, parallelogram. I know.
1: You're the least stable geometric shape on the planet.
0: It's You know what? The fact that of all the geometric shapes that we both put parallelogram at number two, that has to tell you something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's the worst. Yeah. Terrible. Even part of these, I'm I'm also, unfortunate because I can't not, especially after teaching, think about these things as architectural elements. Students that design things that are trapezoidal or parallelogram shaped, they're the worst.
0: I'm not a, not a fan.
1: I'm not a fan because they're hard to manage. They'll find all these angles that are impossible to deal with, which leads me to my number one most Okay, all right, <laughs> hated is a
0: triangle. <gasps> you know, triangle is one we said, if it's not on your list, you might be a psychopath.
1: Triangle is, architecturally speaking, and in most instances, triangles are terrible. And I guess I'm going to start thinking about it spatially. Triangles are just the worst. You can't, they're just terrible.
0: Okay, but here's the question. Somebody, and I'm going to put myself in that camp, I go, what are we talking? Isosceles? Equilateral?
1: Equilateral. To me, all of them, but equilateral. Because they're all acute angles. You can't deal with acute angles. Architecturally speaking, acute angles are terrible to deal with. Yeah. And again, this isn't great because this semester I've been dealing with some people that have these triangular spaces and I'm like, You just wasted half the room because it's a triangle, but you can't do anything. It's terrible. Nobody walks in that corner. You're going to put a plant in that corner or a lamp or something stupid because it shouldn't be a triangle. It should be something different, right? It shouldn't be a triangle.
0: Any room that's a triangle. It's really just like a place for a coven of Blair witch people to go stand in the corner.
1: Yeah, it's terrible.
0: It's garbage. Yes.
1: And so that's where it comes from. I mean, I don't know that I, I, Oh, I no. Look, I can visualize, but like it's, it's the architect in me that hates the triangle. That's it.
0: You know, and I'm not going to lie. So not only can I visualize a student doing a, like a triangular shaped room, I can imagine them pushing like a rectangular table kind of in the corner a little bit and just geometry chaos is going on. Oh, yeah. All the time. It makes me angry. Oh, I love to watch them put
1: doors on a triangle. Oh, I mean, that's <laughs> worse.
0: That's worse. Okay. I started off by saying it's got to be on there. But then Uh my wife and her math brain started noodling on me a little bit, and I went, okay. I didn't bring it to, like, the architect use of a triangle. I was just like, it's a shape. Sure. So I was like, okay, maybe there's some beauty in the math behind an equilateral triangle. And so Mm. I was like, okay, I'm going to make it number four on my list, but this is a top three. Yeah. So, my number one is a dodecahedron, which... Is any polyhedron with 12 flat faces? And I go, 12
1: sides. It's just
0: hard to spell, number one. And come on, just be a circle already. Yeah. Right? (laughs) It's a circle with 12 segments to it. Yeah. You're basically a circle.
1: You're a straight line circle.
0: Yes. Commit. I don't like it. That's true.
1: (laughs) Dodecahedron.
0: Come on, man. (laughs) Yeah. So those are. So we had, out of our six, we had one match and five others. We had five shapes
1: out of six, possible.
0: Yes. Yes. And you know what? I almost put a star as a shape. I was like, star, what a jerk. And the only reason I didn't is because when I was a kid, they were kind of fun and easy to draw. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to put
1: another, like, anything that has more than four sides, hexagons or octagons or whatever. Yeah. But it's fine. I don't know why I decided to go with dodecahedron. Like, I, I just skipped all the sides till the yeah to the biggest.
0: The hexagon, the heptagons, the octagons. I skipped all of those. Went to twelve. I
1: think for me, pentagon would have been close. The pentagon and the trapezoid were close because the pentagon is kind of a funky. It's like connecting all the points on a star, essentially, and so you get this weird shape that's again got some bad angles that you have to deal with. It's got some underworld connotations to it. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, again, for me, most of my prejudice here comes from dealing with student projects. That's fair. Over the past few years. And it's like, these are the shapes. I hate them. Don't do them. Don't do them. Don't do them.
0: You should do that. Day one. They do it anyway. And then they figure out it doesn't work. I'm your professor, Andrew. Don't use a triangle as a building shape. (laughs) It happens. All right. I think we've reached a point where we're going to call that a wrap. So thank you for being with us today for Episode 115, The Art of Getting It Wrong. Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack clad architectural metal cladding systems. Visit pack cladcom to learn more. In addition, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast.
1: Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a sensational new episode.
0: While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star, five-stars rating.
1: To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this illuminating episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.